0: Been taking the uh, road to the kingdom, and it's been kind of the you know whenever you've gone on one of those uh, if you ever did like a like a long trip on the mainland, a road trip, and you know you know the first uh, hour often sometimes less depends on how many kids you have. It's fun, like yeah, you're out on the road and everything's good, and you know no one said I need a potty break or are we there yet? And, and it's all sunshiny and awesome, and that's kind of like the first two, two messages. I like preaching those messages because so much in there of just about what God has done for us and who God is and his goodness that, that he pours out in creation. We saw that creation wasn't just for creation's sake, that he created for us and that he made everything good for us. And we, we then saw last week that in addition to the stuff he created for us, he also designed us and he created us for good, healthy relationships. That part of that thriving, abundant life is not just being able to, you know, enjoy the earth, but it's... it's the the idea of enjoying the earth together, the relationships that we have together. And and it extends far beyond just, um, you know, just like like a husband-wife or friends or family. It's all of that, but it's so much more. We're designed for relationships with him. And the one we often forget is that relationship with the world hasn't changed either with with creation, that we, we were designed for that. Well, as much as that was the first part of the journey, the, 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 the fun part, the, this is where everything starts, and we, we have to ask the question, you know, then how did things end up the way they are? How did it end up this way? God provided everything he made it good how did it end up going what seems to be so horribly wrong and the main reason is simply this that the world has consistently since creation rejected god and what makes it particularly like problematic is that the world rejects God because of the evil it does. It's not even like a direct rejection of God. What we see in the Bible is that each of us and all of us collectively, we, we reject God and we reject God in, in doing the opposite of good. And that's what we're going to see today. And, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, different ways I think the world rejects God. I mean, everybody can say like, oh, yeah, 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 I understand you're talking about, you know, those, those atheists. Well, yeah, I guess so. You know, maybe you're thinking like, oh, you, you mean people who reject the one true God and follow another God. Yeah, that too. But I'm pretty sure this room right now and most of the people online don't fall in those two categories because I think there's another way that we reject God a more subtle way and it's a way that that we as Christians can be just as guilty of as as anyone else it's what we talked about in the first part of this year and in in going through Ezra Nehemiah and that's when we don't like outwardly reject God we just, you know, we just try to give him a makeover. You know, try to make him a little more appealing to us, a little more acceptable. And maybe it's not to us. Maybe we're willing to accept God with all of his idiosyncrasies and everything. But we wanna, you know, we want our friends to like God too. So we, we modify God a little bit. We, you know, we, we don't deal with what scripture says who God is we adjust it so that we have a more acceptable God you know it's and by the way I always warn especially wives don't look at your husband if this was the case you know that that you know when you first started dating that guy you're like all right he's a project I'm gonna I'm gonna work on him I'm going to help him become A more acceptable member of society Um, you know people will be able to see you know the all the treasure i see in him you know um, it's a good thing we have masks on because people can't really tell like yep that that was me still still project still going on but that's again what some people do with god they're like i'm not rejecting god just cleaning him up spiffing him up warning him you know god you shouldn't maybe talk about those things you should Talk about these other things instead. Well, this isn't new. It's been going on since the beginning. And when we kind of have it next to what we just saw in chapters 1 and 2 about what this God who we reject has done, it even looks worse. So we've gone through creation we've gone to the story of eden and now in this place where how does how does that story of eden end and it concludes with the fall of humanity now one make sure you understand something because i think it's a you know we talked about it last week that uh that all this stuff up until now everything that's been talked about it's been called good very good okay so that's all on the good, very good side, whether that's, you know, creation itself, whether that's rest, we talked about, you know, rest, we talked about work, we talked about life, we talked about law, family, all of that's on the side of good before the fall has occurred. Everything we're going to talk about next is, is not what is good. And it's weird because in our world, we, we sometimes get this confused even as Christians. We sometimes think some of the things that God had established as part of the, the good world that he had created and designed for us, that, that that is actually part of, you know, the result of sin. And some of the things that are the result of sin we think are actually things that we should want, and we should see as good. Need to keep that straight. There's a a really strong line here between chapter two and chapter three. Everything that happens after chapter three wasn't part of the original design. Understand this too, this is the road to the kingdom. It wasn't part of the original design, but it was part of the original plan. The plan leads to the kingdom. And unfortunately, it can't just go straight from Eden to the kingdom. So we look here in chapter three, verse one, it says, "'Now the serpent was more crafty "'than any other beast of the field "'that the Lord God had made. "'He said to the woman, Again, our our questions that we want to answer are not the questions we bring to the text, and the kind of questions we bring to the text are like, "How's this serpent speaking? Um, why isn't like Eve like freaked out by the serpent speaking? Did all the animals talk? Did the fruit talk too? Um, you know what was going on? Well, that's not what this story is is telling us. It's not telling us." whether serpents always spoke or this one was particularly, you know, you know, advanced. Didn't say that at all. But again, we love to bring, you know, we love to bring questions to the text that the text wasn't necessarily meant to answer. And really the most important question we always begin with is, what did this mean to the original audience? Unless you think that all the way for the past three, four thousand years, that the Bible had nothing to say to anybody until you read it, if if that's what you think, then you're kind of a little bit full of yourself, and you're seriously mistaken. There's a reason that this was written thousands of years ago, and there's a reason that it was written to those people. And so we want to know what is the message that, that, that those people would have heard, that they would have understood, and not bring our, you know, questions that we sometimes think are so much more advanced to the text. And you might go, well, did the ancient Israelites have talking snakes too? Uh, from what we know, no, they didn't. But that's not the point. The point is to hear the story, and what does the story tell them about God? What does the story tell them about themselves? And what does the story tell them about the world? Well, we can see certain things right off the bat that, um, you know, as we had talked before, that, that God actually had law before the fall. It wasn't complicated law. It just was like, don't do this, this one thing. Don't do this. That was law. They couldn't follow that. Um, you know, we see this this ser- serpent. Later, we understand the serpent is, is is Satan, and and we see that, and and the ser- serpent is you know, walking around this, this perfect place makes us think, like, what is perfect, right? The serpent's there. And then, as we kind of talked about, we, on a Wednesday night, we have this, this tree in the middle, and some people go, like, oh, that's a test. That's, a, that's why it was there, it was a test. And God was testing their obedience. Eh, maybe. Might be true. But let's say you wanted to test your, your, you have a little kid in your house, grandchild, child, and you wanted to test them. So you wanted to test them about how obedient they were to you. And so you, you, you went to the, you go in the refrigerator and you put in a bottle of bleach. And you put it in the most beautiful bottle you could. And then you, you, know, you open the refrigerator door, you show it to the child, and you say, look, you can eat anything in the refrigerator except that one bottle. Now, if you had put chili pepper water in there or something like that, okay, you may be trying to teach a lesson. But you've put something in there that could kill them. Not the best lesson. You're not going to win parent or grandparent of the year award for that, that lesson. Nobody's going to praise your genius. Oh, that's such a great. And yet, that's kind of what we see here. Why would in the middle of a perfect place, God would put something so deadly, so dangerous? And yet, that's the story. Probably means we're not Understanding the story exactly the way that it should be understood, and in fact, we wouldn't be the first not to. Apparently, the woman didn't understand it either. So we have this serpent who goes and and he asks, you know, he kind of says, um, you know, um, did God actually say, "You shall not eat of any tree in the garden"? Now. What we can tell is the serpent knew exactly what God had said. But what is he doing? Well, he's putting himself in a place of like, you know, I don't know. I'm just here asking some innocent questions. And he's also giving, you know, the the other person, the woman in this case, a chance to show like, you know, I'm an expert. I know this stuff. Oh, no, 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 that's, that's not what he said. And of course, she gets it wrong too. She says... Well, God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. And that little little addition, that little addition that seems kind of harmless is actually hugely important in contributing to the fall. You see, that little thing shows us that sin... Sin can begin even with the smallest move from truth. Sin can begin with even the smallest move from truth. Just modify just modify God's truth just a little. Add just a little to it. Don't focus on just a little. And again, this is why... As Christians, we understand that, the, that what's at the core of being a Christian is being a disciple. And we're being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're being a disciple of truth. We're being a disciple of God's word. Because we want to know truth. We want to live truth. And we want to proclaim truth. And we don't want to get kind of true. We don't want to get kind of close to True. I mean, have you ever had like a doctor use the word, um, yeah, or whatever? You know, and they're talking to you and, and, and they say, like, um, you know, this is what I think is wrong with you, but, you know, or, you know, whatever. You'd be like, uh, you no, know, doctor, I don't want to hear whatever from you. I want to hear what's wrong. I want to know the truth. Oh, you know, you could take this medicine or that medicine or whatever. No, don't tell me whatever, I want to know truth. Tell me what it is. Don't vary from the truth. And yet sometimes as Christians we get caught up in this like, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's the Jesus thing, the cross, you know, that Christmas thing, and, and we should all try to be good and love each other and, you know, do whatever. And that becomes what Christianity is to us you know, we kind of understand God, but there's a whole bunch of, ah, you know, whatever. The Bible says a lot of things about God. Here's the one thing I know, and then, you know, everything else is whatever. Those whatevers are dangerous. The slightest move from truth. And it leads to this self-deception. And what's happening is if you think about it if she knew for sure she was told not to eat by adding touch by adding touch what do you have to do before you eat it you have to touch it and if you touch it and you don't die and that's what you think the rule is you don't die Easier to eat it now. Slight thing. Small thing. And that's where sin began. Slight variation. And what's amazing about this story, the way this story is told, it's that how much longer would the serpent have had to wait before Adam and Eve would have just done this on their own? They don't need a lot of convincing. It's more like just like a, hey, look at that thing. Oh, okay, let me go eat it. I mean, that's it. It's like it's just a nudge. What does it tell you? It tells you they've been thinking about this. This isn't new. Every time they walk by the tree, they're thinking about it. Haven't done it yet. You know, serpent's just there to kind of nudge them, get them to move. It's not a big thing. It's a small thing. But it's a small thing that causes problems because it's attached to something inside of them already. They already want to rebel. They already want to reject. So they have this self deception that is then combined with this external deception, which is to make what is wrong look right. That's kind of what's happening in our world today. What's happening in our world today is, you know, it's kind of the world broken free from absolutism, and you have relativism, and then you have all these, these facts and stories, and because we can't trust any one story, then, you know, people just make up stories all the time. You know, I, you know and, and, and it's funny, because we call out certain people but well, we don't call it other people. You know, the person who puts you know, all these facts together to show that there are actually lizard people living among us, and they can, they can tell you and they can show you how that's, you know, the government's covering it up and all of this. We immediately go, those guys are crazy. And of course, if you're one of those guys, um, I'm not calling you crazy. Unless you think I'm a lizard person, then you're crazy. But we, we call them crazy right away. And yet everybody else, other people that are more reputable, they get to connect everything however they want. And as long as they have a story that sort of makes sense, it's good. It's acceptable. Because we live in a world where nobody has a monopoly on truth. And, you know, we kind of have this lull right now because, because we're in between major election years. It's all going to crank up next year. And that's when everybody is out there connecting all the dots, trying to tell you this is what something is and making the story that connects everything. And so many times they want to take what is wrong and make it look right and take what is right and make it look wrong the smallest move from truth just just revealing what's already there in our hearts and and you think of all the things the serpent says the thing that probably like just just finished it for for the woman when, she, when, when he says, "And you will be like God," you will be like God. And it's it's funny because a lot of people are like, "I I, I, I believe in God. I, I don't I don't you know I don't want to become like God." And yet, when it comes to determining what's right and wrong, when it comes to determining what's true or false. Who ends up being the sole arbiter of truth and goodness in their lives? They do. We all do this. We essentially are making ourselves God because we determine what's right and wrong. Oh, we may listen, we may do our research, we may listen to, you know, 10, 15, 20 sources, we may look at that, we may look at different positions... But ultimately, all of that's being laid out in the court of you, and you are determining what's right and what's wrong. That's, that's why when we, when we lose any sense of, of absolute truth, when we lose any sense that God's word is God's word, his revelation that, that is to us, then... We really become, we become exactly what this is saying, we become like God. We define everything, we judge everything, we evaluate it, and in fact, we say that's a good thing, and so we find here, this is just revealing what's already in the heart, and and I think ancient Israelites, even though they lived different lives than we live, this resonated with them too. This isn't a modern thought. And we see this repeated throughout their history in the Bible. We see this in Judges where it says, there's no king, everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. <clears throat> there was a constant move from, from trying to follow the covenant, follow God's law, and wanting to just find another religion, another culture, something else to follow. We also see here <clears throat> this, this phrase that you, know, you can tell a lot of uh, men teach and preach because this isn't talked about enough where it says in verse 6, it says, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. You see, this, this story begins, and it looks like over here in the corner of the garden, there's you know, the serpent and the woman having this conversation, and the man is, who knows, he's probably watching football or something. So he's somewhere else. But this is telling us, no, he's there with her, listening and not doing anything. You know, maybe he had already subscribed to the wisdom that most men know, happy wife, happy life. You know, and he's just like, hey, I'm not going to intervene. Or maybe he's just as intrigued and he's letting her you know, do all the kind of dirty work. And he's just as intrigued. He's just as tempted. But he's not gonna he's not gonna say anything. He's letting you know, he's using his wife like like cannon fodder. You go out, you face the enemy. And again, the way the story's told, she gave it to him, he ate it. There was no hesitancy. There was no internal conflict. She gave it to him. He ate it. I mean, he's almost like portrayed the way, unfortunately, fathers and husbands are often portrayed in you know modern entertainment, like as as these lovable doofuses or unlovable doofuses. That's kind of what he looks like. You know, he's just standing there while this incredible moment in human history is taking place when, when God himself is being impugned and questioned and lied about and he's just standing there either agreeing with it or too afraid to do anything about it. And this is... This is Communicating, I think it communicated this to the ancient Israelites, and I think we forget this, that this is saying that when you break your relationship with God, you have a broken relationship with God, that's going to lead to a broken relationship with others. A broken relationship with God is going to lead to a broken relationship with others. And in this particular case, the only others is just the man and the woman. It's this marriage relationship. And we know how important that is to God's plan. The marriage was so crucial to God's plan. It was essential because the marriage was going to form the family, and from the family, truth was going to be passed down from generation to generation. And now that's broken. And it's the full expression of, of like, The selfishness that as much as we would like to say we selflessly love others and and, and we want to say it about, you know, hopefully about our spouses, we see here the man, he fails to love his spouse. He fails to love her. He's there, but he doesn't do what he knows he should do. And the woman fails to love her husband. Even after she's done something that she knows is wrong, she doesn't say, you know, run away, protect yourself. She doesn't say, you know, go tell God what happened. No, just join me. Neither one of them is looking in love at the other They're looking at their own self-interest. Well, we also know that this idea of broken relationships with God, broken relationships with others, is embedded in, in the Bible. It goes everywhere from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That if you have a healthy relationship with God, it leads to healthy relationships with other people. And if you have a broken relationship with God, it leads to broken relationships with other people. And of course, we think about this more in an individual sense. We think about you know, our, our individual relationships, and, and it applies. But this is talking more about you know, we as a people, in this case the Israelites, as a people, We need to understand that this covenant we make with God is not just a covenant with God. It's a covenant that, yes, a relationship with God, but it's a covenant that establishes us as a people to have a good society, a good community, a community that reflects the goodness of creation. That's what it's for. And when we think we're just doing this little thing, sure, you know... I, I didn't really believe in those those Canaanite gods, but you know, uh, the wine was good. It was a good party. I didn't really believe it, but you know, I, you know, they were doing that song where they were worshiping, so you know, I joined in because it's a good song. It's a catchy song. No. They 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 failed to get this key connection. And so what we find repeated again and again in the Old Testament is we find idolatry and this social injustice, and especially in the Old Testament, it's not how we think about it today. In the Old Testament, social injustice was the, the impover- impoverishment and the enslavement of the poor. Really treating the poor, and we're talking about poor Israelites, like they weren't part of God's people. They were no better than, than slaves or outsiders. And we see this throughout. We see it in the Ten Commandments. There's two tablets in the Ten Commandments one talking about the relationship to God, the other, the relationships to each other. When Jesus is asked, What's the greatest commandment? what does he say? He says, Love the Lord your God. And then he says, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're tied together. Connected. If you say, I'm growing in my faith, I'm growing as a Christian, I'm getting closer to God, I know him more. And that's not resulting in you loving especially your fellow believers more if that's not reflected in you wanting to improve your relationships with, with, with other people and to move to reconciliation, if that's not what's happening, then I'm not really sure you're learning about God. I'm not sure what you're learning about. They, they go together. You want to improve your marriage? Well, then, if both of you are are developing a deeper understanding, a deeper love for God. The Bible is saying, "It's going to improve your marriage. You're going to have a deeper love for one another. It's going to make it healthier. It's right there. Good relationship with God leads to a good relationship with others. But understand this too we can only have a good relationship with god if we are good you cannot be doing things against god you cannot be following the ways of the world and say yeah i got a good relationship with god a good relationship with god presupposes that we are good that we are living according to what god says And people go, well, why does God get to say? Why does God get to call all the shots? Why does he get to make all the rules? Well, think about this. If God is who he says he is, he is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's sovereign, and he is perfectly good, and he perfectly loves who else would you want making the rules? Why would someone like that say, why don't you try your hand at making some rules? In fact, as we're going to read in the next section, what we're going to see is we're going to see that sin is much more than just breaking the law The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate because I am weak and helpless and pitiful. No, I'm sorry. I added that part. Um, then it says, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. You know, when we, when we look at this, you know, some people look at that and go, oh, that's why you know, we're um, you know, ashamed to be naked or we wear clothes and all this other stuff. It's like that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is just like we saw in chapter 2, we saw that breathing of life. We saw that, that we were designed for a relationship with God. What we see here is that this is not just about you disobeyed. That something has entered into this relationship. That sin is not just the breaking of a law. It's a personal offense against God. It's a personal offense against God. The law is not just arbitrary rules God makes up. And says, hey, you know, I got some stuff I want them to do. In fact, the law, in some ways, is expressing who God is. It comes from his very heart. You know, later on, we're going to read in in the Old Testament about the new covenant that's supposed to be written on our hearts, and we read about Paul writing that same kind of thing in in his letters and, and this idea of being written in our hearts, a law written in our hearts. And you go, why does the law need to be written in our hearts? because it's written on the heart of God. That's why. When we reject God's law, when we reject his word, when we say, you know, we're going to go our own way, what we're saying is, I know better than you, or you're not as good as you think you are, or you're not as powerful as you think you are, or you're not as wise, you don't really know me. Or you don't really love me. And we, we don't think about it that way. I think the only time we think about that, I think is when we become parents. And you know, and we have the rules. We have rules that are just rules like, you know, because we wanna keep our sanity. So we make up rules and we make like, they're really important, but they're not. But it's just to keep, you know, sanity. Or we, you know, so we have those rules. But then we have the things that, that are really like, this is something about who we are. That this matters to us. And we're, we're telling our, our children, you know, we want you to do this because, and here's why. This is, this is the reason. This is how it's attached to who I am. And when they break those rules... You feel it. Because you know they're rejecting you. They're just not saying don't eat the cookies in the cookie jar. This is now a personal offense. So what happens. If God was just making up rules, we broke the rules, okay, no big deal. Sorry God. Told me to be home by 11. That's home 11.05. Sorry. That's all we'd have to do. But this is a rejection of God. This is saying, God, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't love me enough. You're not powerful enough. I can do better. And then we see in verse 14 where God responds... I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What do we see here? Again, some people might go like, oh, that's why it's hard to farm. Or, oh, that's why, you know, childbirth is so painful. And that's all they get from the story. And if that's all they get, they miss something. And what they miss is these two things that come together. And it comes together here and it's going to continue on. It continues on even to our day. That this rebellion against God, this rejection against God, this sin has consequences. That sin has consequences, but God still loves. His mercy is more, we're saying it. His love is, is not going to be defeated by our sin. Sin has consequences, but God still loves. And if, you, if, if the story were something different, if, if, if the story ended up with sin having no consequences, if God had done like what we sometimes do, which is, all right, guys, yeah, you made a mistake, but I'm gonna let it go this time. Don't do it again. That's a much worse world. And that's a horrible, pathetic God. For God to say, this is, everything I've done for you is good and perfect an expression of love, including this thing about don't eat or touch. Well, not touch, but don't eat this thing. That's it. That's the only rule. All of it is an expression of my love. All of it is good. And if he just says, eh, it's okay. He had a bad day. Serpent was mean. You made a mistake. You were hungry. He could have made all the excuses that we sometimes make, when we make for other people and there's no consequence it's a worse world it's a worse god but i also want you to see something else that's being communicated here god is always always throughout this story he is he is portrayed as being in control he is sovereign he is creator he is still calling the shots. And he says, serpent. And understand. If we understand serpent is Satan. This, this isn't a rival power. This isn't God like, you know, having to get out a sword or call a bunch of angels to fight off the serpent. It's like, serpent, that's what you're going to do. Boom, you're doing it. It's so different from so many other stories, the way God is portrayed here. Always in control. Woman, this is what's going to happen. Adam, this is what's going to happen. Ground, this is what's going to happen. And it happens. But I don't want you to miss the grace in the story too. And the grace is in the story when when we think about what God could have done what we might have done. Let's just start all over. Just get rid of them. You know what? This world's better without humans. Bing, bing, digging them out. So many things about what he could have done. But what we see here is we, we see that even the serpent, the serpent now becomes a reminder. The serpent is a reminder of our sin and God's grace. Childbearing will be painful but you still will be able to produce life. I'm not sure how it would have been otherwise. I'm not sure if babies would have just popped out and it would have been fine. No pain at all. Nothing needed. But notice the grace is Yet you shall still be able to give life. Look at Adam. Saying, look, it's going to be hard. Working the ground is going to be hard. It's going to fight back. This relationship with the earth, you messed it up. But you will still produce bread. You will not starve. I will still provide. It's pretty amazing. We even see it in, in the garments of skins that it's talked about. This, this, you know, sometimes used to talk about a tunic. You know, they had made this loincloth, which didn't cover much. And wasn't really good for long term. Because, you know, leaves wither and die. But even more so, the garments of skin, it covers. And so there's a grace to that, but there's also a reminder of their sin. Because when the world was good, they didn't need clothes. But now that sin has entered the world, they need clothes because they feel so ashamed and they feel guilty. So the skin is at once a grace, I mean, the 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 garments are once a, a grace from God but they're also this reminder of their sin and we get this that probably the ancient Israelites didn't really understand at this point there's no way they could have but we get that which the later church interpreted understood as, as being a referring to Jesus the Messiah where he talks about how the offspring of the woman will bruise the serpent and the serpent will bruise the offspring's heel. It's talking about this, this, this what's going to come. The early church looked back and saw that. And so what do we see here? What do we see in this story? that we get to see that perhaps the ancient Israelites really couldn't see. We get to see grace in the way of salvation already there. The reason I wanted you to understand that this was a breakdown of the original design, not the original plan, is we see that the plan, the plan's already in motion. Jesus Christ isn't plan B. Adam and Eve doing everything perfectly, plan A. They mess it up. Okay, now, Jesus, we need you. No. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus was the plan. And so we see grace even there. Then the final part says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The sentence just kind of ends. It actually, the sentence doesn't get finished. We're not sure why. It just doesn't. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of eden to work the ground from which he was taken he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way the way to the tree of life and i just want to make one quick point here because i think this connects us to the road to the kingdom that what's being said here is something that that we will only you know, that we can know but at this time no one could know and that is that you cannot have eternal life without eternal goodness. You cannot have eternal life without eternal goodness. And this is what points toward the kingdom, because what the kingdom is, in, at least in part, it's eternal life and eternal goodness together. This points to the kingdom. And we know that this is only possible through Jesus Christ. Eternal life and eternal goodness are only possible if we are transformed, if we have the Holy Spirit. And even then, in this world, it's a struggle. But the kingdom then kingdom of eternal life with eternal goodness. And by eternal goodness, don't think like all the things you think are good on earth is going to be around forever. No, it's eternal goodness in terms of who we are in Christ. The eternal goodness in, in the fruit of the Spirit and how we love one another. When, when that's perfect and that perfection is with eternal life, that's the kingdom. It's life as it was meant to be. And it's only possible because of Jesus Christ.